We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. The stories of Kate Doyle's debut collection, I Meant It Once, are each their own atmosphere. In quiet, intimate settings, dorm rooms, apartments, the family home, young women consider the person they are becoming and wonder whether they are doomed to follow in the well-traveled ruts that have been carved out for them. They question intimacies, betray friends, and are betrayed by lovers, and they imagine themselves as built out of small scenes of experience from their earlier lives. I meant it once, plays with the dark humor that sits just beneath our most emotionally vulnerable moments, and Kate Doyle clearly takes great enjoyment in playing with that friction. In stories of nostalgia for relationships that have been lost or frittered away, I meant it once builds a world a world of women on the verge who feel utterly unique even as they remind us of people in our own lives. Kate's honesty means that these stories show characters at their most petty, most vulnerable, and least admirable, and in doing so, she asks us to love them all the more. In a style that is both spare and lyrical, brooding and diversionary, luminous and shadowed, heartfelt and snarky, Kate Doyle gives us a collection of stories as memorable as anything you'll read this summer. A former bookseller at Buffalo Street Books in Ithaca, Kate Doyle has published her stories in No Tokens, Electric Literature, Split Lip, Wig Leaf, and elsewhere. In 2021, she was selected from 1,100 emerging, emerging writers as a public space writing fellow, and she has received support for her work from the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, Hawthornden, the Adirondack Center for Writing, NYU Paris, and the Community Arts Partnership of Tompkins County. She currently lives in Amsterdam. Welcome to the show, Kate Doyle. Thank you, Chris. That was um, such a moving description of the book. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being here. And I knew you as a bookseller at one of the great bookstores in the United States, Buffalo Street Books. And I just want to start with a question about how being a bookseller uh, inflected your work, helped, hindered, made you think differently about what it means to be a writer. I became a bookseller toward the end of, I mean, I worked on this book for many, many years. And I became a bookseller in the, in the 
latter half of that process. And um, I think it was great in those years when you becomes a less, much less private endeavor and um, you familiarize yourself all too quickly with um, what's very difficult about just the industry business aspect of this. So I think um, it was wonderful to just be in the store um, experiencing conversations with people about books all the time, seeing how many books are being published to just um, put the larger project of writing in the community of writers into perspective in a very, in a very helpful way in those years. Yeah. Mm. Well, speaking of other books and other writers, the back of your book is littered with some of my favorite uh, writers working today. Claire Lombardo, Brandon Taylor, Kevin Wilson, Alexandra Chang, Lynn Steger-Strong, Darren Strauss, Kara Blue Adams. Wow. When when those rolled in, uh, what was your response and, and how did it feel to have such an adorned book? It was amazing. And I think, you know, when you're... Um... When you are publishing stories, especially, you just hear so many times um, editors will say stories are hard. Agents will say, no, I want to buy stories. You know, it's, you just hear so many times that it's a, it's a challenge. People don't want to read them. And, and so even at the point where the book was going to be published, I think I was still really feeling weighed down by having heard all that along the way. And just um, mm. and so it felt even at the point when I knew it would be published, I felt sort of far away from a feeling that it would that it would that readers would connect to it and that it would really be a book. And I think that when it really felt that way was when those, those blurbs came in. And now there's some of my absolute favorites too. So just very, very happy about it. Yeah. I remember that you and I, I remember from, from being at the bookstore and talking to you there that you and I have a lot of um, favorite authors in common and that a lot of them have been on the podcast. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, we definitely do. And, and seeing them here was very exciting for me. Um, I want to dive into the title for a second, um, which I think does a lot of work for these stories. <clears throat> I came away from the collection struck about how much intimacies um, have come undone un uh, in these stories. Something Sometimes that intimacy is friendship, other times romance or family intimacy. But the title prompts me to think about how in the moment of true feelings of intimacy, we can't understand that things might change radically in the future. And this idea of having meant it for real and fully once, but then having that change in, in perhaps diametric ways later on is something we don't like to think about as human beings. Can you talk about the title a bit and, and its relationship to the ephemerality of intimacy? Yes. Um, the, the title kind of um, turned up by accident initially in the story where it appears, um, where um, I was writing about the, the three siblings who appear in several of the stories, Helen and Evan and Grace. And um, Helen is trying to get out of trouble by explaining that she didn't, you know, that she gets in trouble because she wrote this mean note about her sister. Her sister finds it, and but it's from a long time ago. And she says, well, I don't mean it anymore. I only kept it because I meant it once. And not very long after writing that, I I was kind of for the first time starting to try to see what it would look like. The different stories I was writing were pulled together into a book. And I just realized that, that I was kind of reviewing everything. And that sentence just jumped out to me. Um, and I, I think, you know, I'm really interested in phrases like that that just kind of contain, they're so small, but they contain like a, a vast amount of time um, and the phrase at the time appears in a lot of these stories and I, I think that's similar where 
it, it suggests, you know, something that was so true and is no longer from the point of telling. Um, and yeah, you know, in the context of the full sentence where Helen says that I only kept it because I meant it once, I think that speaks so much to it. A lot of these characters are doing, they sort of can't let go of things. And mm-hmm. at the same time, mm-hmm. a lot of heartbreak that they feel comes from other people kind of being like, I meant it once to them, friends who have kind of moved on or like, yes, we were, you know, you're important to me at one point and now life is different. So just um, speaks to a lot of the themes that I think um, that I, you know, in that moment when I was starting to look at what connected the different stories together, realizing that that it really was, it's it's simple, but time and memory and, and how weird it is to have these experiences that then you carry with you forever, but they may not even slightly true to who you are anymore or true for the people who you experience them with. Mm-hmm. And you said you're, you admire sen- sentences or phrases that carry kind of a depth of time and, and feeling in them. And that's actually how I would describe your style in this collection. I mean, you don't overwrite anything. You are you're sparing with adjectival work. Um, and yet these sentences feel very full of atmosphere and, and weight. You're clearly very careful about choosing and placing phrases and and words. And and I often felt bowled over by the emotion you generate sort of sentence by sentence, even though at times they are spare. But would you describe your prose as as controlled, as working with a certain kind of organizational principle? And how do you think about your style? Well, first of all, thank you. I do think spare is, is a word for it, but I think syntax has always been sort of the point of entry for me. Um, we were from very the very beginning when I was just starting to write. Um, and so sometimes when I think about spare, I think of short sentences kind of. Um, and I think I'm, I'm interested in long sentences, but yes, not ever, I never want to say more than, you know, if I could say it in as few words as, as possible, I see a lot of value in that too. Um, but it's kind mm. of, it's almost because it's kind of, feels kind of instinctive. Um, but I, Maybe one answer to this is when I was um, a student and I was becoming serious about writing, I was also very serious about theater. Um, and I really wanted to, um, for a few years, I really wanted to direct plays. And so I would have these experiences where, you know, you just sit in a room with actors and you just try to watch them closely and feel your way towards like, why does it feel like they can say the same sentence and if they're standing closer to each other, it feels this way. And if they're standing farther apart, it feels this way. And if they change the t- intonation in one way or another and i think that affected my prose a lot if that makes sense um just mm-hmm. looking really closely at how the sort of the rhythms of things and the space between things kind of um affects how they land and how the meaning accumulates yeah yeah speaking of the space between things many of your stories most of them uh visually break paragraphs with uh, mm-hmm. a good deal of white space in in between and there's something there's something carried on in that white space, almost as as though it were poetry. And I wonder what the thinking was behind that form, which reminded me um, a bit of Jenny o- Ophel's fiction. Um, but for for me, they were an invitation to reflection on what had just happened and a, a kind of thoughtful pause. I love that. Um, well, I love that you mentioned Jenny Ophel because I I think of her as the writer, kind of number one influence when I was when I was just starting um to write this book um mm. I read speculation I kind of stumbled by accident on the James Wood review of, of 
of it in the New Yorker. Um, and it blew my mind. And I think it's just, I, I had studied before that I had, I had been in this program as an undergraduate where it was called the nonfiction writing program. Well, you know, you were at Brown. <laughs> um, it was called the nonfiction writing program. And, but a lot of the professors in the program were poets or just actually was, a, you know, a lot of different kinds of writers uh, teaching a lot of different kinds of nonfiction writing. So I ended up taking a lot of classes that were about lyric essay. And I would say maybe they were kind of prose poetry. And we talked a lot about white space. And I just think I learned so much about juxtaposition and tension between different um, paragraphs and and use of white space, but never in the context of fiction. I wasn't writing fiction. Mm. And when I read... Oh, that's fascinating. Well, when I read Department of Speculation, and I was kind of becoming tired of... I was like 23, and I, was, I just felt like I didn't want to write so close, so literally close to my own life anymore. Like, I, I think I was just starting to want more freedom to experiment. And um, so when I read that book, I, and I was interested in writing fiction, it's just like, it just... Um, it's such an aha moment. And the first story in this book that I wrote uh, was This is the Way Things Are Now. Um, mm-hmm. And I think of, yeah, Department of Speculation is just like a, just a huge influence on that story. And, and just for the first time, I was like, okay, so if I, I can kind of take out anything that feels extraneous and just put these, and it's so true to memory, right? The, and to experience the way things kind of live side by side in your mind. So the past is here and now we're in the present and now we're back in the past. And I think it's so mm-hmm. Thinking and um, you're having experience, but it's reminding you of something else. So, yeah. So, um, Jenny Apple, she's amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> she certainly is. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, that was very, very beautifully answered. Uh, family in I Meant It Once is, isn't easy. Uh, in particular, you follow those three siblings uh, through several linked stories, two sisters, Helen and Grace, and their brother, Evan. And they mostly want to slap each other uh, <laughs> and in, in both physical and metaphysical ways. In one of my favorite stories, a Cinnamon Baseball Coyote, you dive into the paradox of these kinds of rela- uh, relationships. The animus on the outside often hides a deep well of loyalty and connection on the inside. Why are siblings, and specifically this trio, of interest to you? Um, so they kind of surprised me on the page because I want to, I sat down to write a story, that, that story that I just mentioned, this is the way things are now. I sat down to write about friendship disintegrating and I remember just very, like I had written the first few paragraphs about Helen and Catherine, the friends, and then I just had this feeling of, well, it's Helen's point of view that we're with. I should sort of fill out, just like craft-wise, just try to like fill in her world a little more outside this mm-hmm. friendship. So I started sketching in these siblings and just at that point, purely because they were sort of useful from that craft standpoint. And, and then I just kept wanting, I just, they were so, so it was such a, and, and again, I was very early in the book at that point. It was just such an interesting lesson in the way that your, the writing process can surprise you and sort of give you what you didn't know you needed. Um, cause they became so important to the story to the point where then I wanted, they were the reason I wanted to write more about Helen was to write more about them. I think they're, I love how like anything she feels about the world they're both prepared to just say absolutely the opposite and they are not shy about it. <laughs> and they're just like, hey, hey. oldest sister. And I just have memories of those years where I was out of college and in the world and things started to feel really messy and confusing. And my sister was still in this very organized life of being a student and 
And she was very open about kind of being like, I don't care what you're going through right now. <laughs> like, what? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, and it's just a very interesting time. Um, and I just think sibling relationships, but also other kinds of relationships that turn, show up in the book about like, old friends or parents or uh, someone you've been dating for a while. Like there's something about... Um, knowing another version of a person and them knowing another version of you but you're still bound together um like in many ways for better and in many ways for worse and like you you these things kind of doesn't matter that they're all like helen and evan and grace are in their 20s now there are just these moments where what happened when they were six <laughs> like mm -hmm. still lives and affects um their dynamic and i think i was just very interested in that and those those relationships that stay with us for so many years yeah, I have the same. I'm I'm the eldest by by quite a bit, and I remember that moment of living on my own, and my brother and sister still being very much in organized schooling, and I felt adrift. And I think they were like, "What is wrong with you?" Yeah. <laughs> and they never go through. Well, I shouldn't say never, but they don't go through quite the same way because they observe you if you're close. Mm -hmm. They observe you, and then they kind of go into it a little more ready. <laughs> and so, yeah. Uh, interesting thing about being the oldest yeah absolutely i meant it once is largely narrated by young women on the brink of of independence in in various ways they're in college or just graduated they're in and out of serious relationships and they're trying to shape their lives finding themselves often stuck or in a state of nostalgia i think we often idealize this point of time in, in, in our youth coming into sort of full adulthood, but it's a terribly difficult time as we've just illustrated in our experiences with our siblings, but you lean into that difficulty. Can you talk about your interest in that liminal period, specifically in a, in a younger woman's life? Yes. Um, I think to be honest, when I started writing these, I didn't totally understand that I was writing about being in your twenties. I thought you know, I knew I was interested in time and I was interested in memory and I was just kind of formally rendering those. Um, and, but I do kind of naturally write kind of close to what I know, what I'm experiencing. And, and, and so as I started to sort of have, I was, and I was in grad school at the time. So I was workshopping the stories kind of on an individual basis. And then I, so it took me like probably longer than it should have to realize like, oh, that because I'm writing a lot about the age that I am, it is actually a book about, about being in your twenties. Um, but I kind of didn't realize that for a long time. Um, and I think also maybe something that I didn't sort of in the moment I was just living it and I was trying to write about it as it felt. Um, but looking back, um, it's there's something about that period where I think especially if you've been to college and in the case of a lot of these young women, like their fathers have been really successful. And so there's sort of like this feeling of like you're they, people keep saying to them, like, things could be worse. Your life is OK. Like, everything's fine. And they like don't feel OK at, at all. Mm -hmm. And there's this then there's this pressure squeezing in on them to be like, but you have to be OK. Like, everyone says you should be OK. Everyone says that. Um, yeah. And like you're saying, we, we also idealize that period um, when, in fact, there's so much that feels so desperate about it because you mm -hmm. yes, you're out of this. Up till then, your life has been often very organized um and very structured and i don't know for me i think a piece of it was like something about growing up in the 90s and this kind of girls girl power girls can do anything energy that meant that i as i got older i like kind of lacked the language to describe things that felt like 
you'd be like, well, it doesn't feel like I could do anything. But yeah, things just feel so desperate at that time. I had a teacher who said it's such a dire period of life and you just, everything mm-hmm. is possible, but then everything feels like the end of the world. And I mean, it's stakes feel very high, which um, ends up being very fruitful for writing. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. You play with the short, short form, um, and you have a couple of almost flash fictions. And I would love it for my audience to get to hear you read one of them, because I think it will so nicely encapsulate a lot of what's happening in this collection. Would you read At the Time? Absolutely. At the time, I was living in Minnesota, or maybe New York. Liz and I were engaged and sharing a light-filled apartment with beautiful, tall windows, unless by then we weren't. I was 27, unless 28. My subsequent girlfriend, Annie, expressed anger that I could not ever remember the chronology of how things unfolded, unless really she was angry that I, unlo- that I loaded the dishwasher haphazardly and our drinks and glasses kept cracking because of it. The glasses were patterned with small blue squares, unless they were patterned with red ones. The glasses were Annie's, unless they were Liz's, and Annie wanted them all thrown away. I wanted to throw them away, except that I wanted to keep them. I hated to throw things away, except that I loved it, just the wild, unspooling, reckless release. Goodbye, unless please stay. Harbor, unless don't. The windows in the apartment Liz and I shared cast warm areas of light across our floors and our bed and the kitchen appliances, except when it rained. We could see Washington Square Park through our small bathroom window, unless our apartment was in Minnesota. The reason is obvious, or maybe it isn't. The Midwestern snow made the glass fog, unless it was just that we both closed our eyes. We cooked dinner, unless it was takeout. Thai food, unless sushi. We cleaned, unless we forgot. We got along famously, except when we didn't, and slept in the same bed, except when awake in the same bed. We ended things when she went back to Minnesota, or else when things ended, I finally moved to New York. She kept the ring, unless I did. I look at it every day, unless I can't stand to think of it at all. I married Liz, subsequent to being engaged to her, except only in the sense that I played out in my mind how that would have been if I'd actually done it. And Annie and I ended things when I broke the last of the drinking glasses, unless it was when I said I forgot the chronology of whether I dated her before or after Liz. What do you mean, Annie said, unless she said nothing and looked like she hated me. I said, it's just what I feel, or else what I said was, I know it's impossible. We had a catastrophic fight at this point, bitter and noisy, except for the critical juncture when we were just quiet, both of us breathing. I held her unless I didn't. I told her to leave, except she left on her own. I smashed up the drinking glasses out on the street, except that I lined them all up in the window, like chessmen, precisely, and with a kind of permanence. Afterward, I liked to watch the light play in the lines where they had fissured, unless the sun went down or I was doing something else that made me look the other way. There were 12 glasses altogether, unless there were nine or five or two. I regarded them while making breakfast, unless I was late to work and stopping for a pastry on my way instead. At the coffee shop near work, unless the one by my apartment. In the East Village, unless in St. Paul. I miss Minnesota, except when I don't, and I regret New York always, unless never. I would change plenty of things, except that I wouldn't. And when I think about it that way, there is no what if, there is no then what. There is only what I chose and did not choose. So many open doors evaporating all around me, one after another, after another, after another. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, 
Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Thank you so much. Uh, I really love this story, in part because it seems to do the work of pulling together craft and life in a really interesting way, and in that we are dialectical beings inside of our own mind, that we, that we remember things differently, out of time, out of place, in the wrong place, with misplaced objects and misremembered things and changed people. And also that's how stories and fictions work. They are choices, choices to have something set here when they could have been somewhere else. The, I remember Kazuo Ishiguro has a famous line about, um, I could have had many, many different lives, but this is the one I'm living. And I, and I felt like that this story sort of grasped that. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, this story, I, I'm going to talk about his origin story because I think it's kind of fun. Um, I was uh, in grad school and we would sometimes, a couple of writers and I would do, do like a, sit down together and do a prompt. And the prompt was you would ask somebody else, where were you in X month and year? We'd all go on the, the month and year. And the idea was not to literally write a story based exactly on what they said, but just to use something in there as your like random bit of inspiration. So I asked a friend of mine, where were you in May 2012? And she said, oh, that was right when I was just out of college. I don't remember if I was back living with my parents in Minnesota or if I had moved to New York. And mm. I just thought there was something so, so right away, I was like, I just have to use that of like not remembering if it was here or there. And then I think, you know, it gave me this whole different way and in a very concise form and a much more formally, formally experimental form, like this way into so many of the questions in the book about and so many things I was thinking about, about just yeah, how do you live in the present and also honor these other, all your memories that have shaped you to this point, but not let them kind of drag you out of the present moment. And yeah, and all, yes, there's that great line in the bell jar about when she's climbing the tree and it's about, it's kind of about like, you can only, there's so many fruits to pick, but you can only pick certain fruits if you go up a certain way. Um, kind of like that, of you know, this something again about being in your 20s and and not just in your 20s, actually your whole life. I mean, just... The way stepping through one door means closing another. But in our minds, we always, as you say, we'll, we'll wonder, we had, could have had these other lives, what would happen if we, if we went this other way? Yeah. And, and fiction, I guess, puts the lie in a way to the, to the monolithicness of memory. Because you can, we sometimes play this game in my family where we'll say 2014, and we have to figure out like, where we were, what we were doing, what was going on. And it's very difficult. Like some people have that kind of recall for, for years and dates. That's, that's weird and geniusy. And I don't, and I, not many people I, I do, uh, no do. And, and yet that seems something magical about memory too. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny because in my family, actually, we are weirdly good. My mother and I and my sister are, are, are weirdly good at like, if you say, in that month and year and it'll be like well so-and-so had just had the baby and the baby's 15 now so you know like oh my um, gosh wow kind of, but i think um that 
kind of associative. Like there's so many things I can't remember, but I'm very good at remembering birthdays for that reason. Like there's something about the associativeness of like being able to sort of place a few different things on the same timeline that I think, um, but that it's so difficult. It has been so difficult. And I feel like that's so much of what some of these characters are grappling with. Like I, I feel like in, when I was younger, I really had to work out like memory stayed with me so vividly. Other chapters stayed with me so vividly that it was very hard to let go of things. Um, and yeah, fiction was a way to kind of put on the page how how alive some of those things could still feel. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, I'm afraid we can't be friends because you have too much of a geniusy year memory and we can't play that game. So um, it, was, it was good while it lasted. <laughs> I love the story. Uh, she did not suffer fools. The atmosphere is is a giant snowstorm that is shutting down the city. And the narrator and her boyfriend are considering what to do about dinner when the bo boyfriend's old bandmate, Mara, shows up unexpectedly. It is at least partially about the protective walls that very smart women build around themselves, unwilling to be hurt by a world that hurts women with such frequency and ease. So who's the fool in this story? <laughs> well, one thing I should say is that um, that story went out in the galley with the wrong title. <laughs> uh, the title. Oh, it did. Oh, did. sorry. <laughs> All right. It's really interesting because I actually, I, I well, I don't know. I, I feel like somehow I feel like both of the titles maybe. And so maybe I'm fine with the fact that it went out with a, with, with, with the other, but it's, um, it's called There Is No Telling. You could just claim that you're like Ali Smith and that you want um, each of your books to have a different order and different narrative focus. Like poems that sort of say both versions of the word charts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, not a very exciting question without fool in the <laughs> in the title. Um, but I'm interested in the ways in which in particular, I think very smart women think about how to erect barriers to protect themselves from a society that for all kinds of reasons, uh, it feels like it can hurt hurt women easily and often. Mm -hmm. No, it's a great question. And um, I the fact that that was the title up until the very last minute i think it's very important to to part what the story's about well i don't know i think i think we could interpret it various ways as who's the fool i think she can too and that's part of part of her angst and confusion and um the, you know i think she's thinking a lot about the ways that just partner in this story gets a lot of credit for being kind gets a lot of mm -hmm. you know it's related to the idea of like when when men get a lot of credit for being like good fathers you know and then, then women will say like well I, you know i don't get the same credit for being a good mother you know um mm -hmm. like oh, it's the playground that that kind of story that you, that you hear people sort of talk about and um i think he's just he's thoughtful and he's a good friend and he's maybe been told all his life like that that's really special and wonderful or something and that's wrong too i mean it's like we shouldn't be split into these categories this way but that is kind of what I was thinking about and the ways I have felt frustrated. I kind of wanted to get on the page. Just the ways that the gender power dynamics can become so frustrating in because it's just the two of you, right? And so um, it's just by the nature of the dynamic in the in a relationship, a heterosexual relationship, trying to talk about this stuff is like one of you has these experiences that the other one hasn't, but it's like very, you don't want to kind of be accusatory about it and, and be like, you don't know. Um, so I think just like all this stuff is bubbling up in her. And so, yeah, she feels so um, 
unkind for she feels so unkind and then she then she's angry that she feels unkind and it's just kind of like spiraling and spiraling and I mean, but what's funny about the story is I wrote it before the pandemic, so it all feels very quaint now to kind of be like, oh, they're trapped in a snowstorm together for three whole days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember when that was like a big problem. And then we all stayed in for three years. <laughs> Everybody knows whether their relationship works now in the entire world. They all figured it out between 2020 and 2023. <laughs> Um, you love to pull the rug out from the reader, often in the final sentences or flourishes of a story. In I Figured We Were Doomed, you reel us into a budding, possibly budding romance between the narrator and M, whose dog seems to love her against all odds, at least in her mind. But the final line, anyway, it didn't work out, pushes over the delicate vase of relationship that you've been building to watch it crash on the floor. What's powerful about stealing what the reader wants or anticipates and doing so in these kind of tiny flourishes? Mm. It's interesting because in that story, actually, from the very beginning, it says at the time, the story begins, at the time I was dating M. It is there from the beginning that that's not that's true. That's true. I think so. I think it's like I thought of it less in that case as pulling the rug out as like a sort of final nail on the but it but it's true and i think she gets kind of pulled back into she gets pulled back into the memories again and again of what it was like at the beginning and has to keep kind of going and then having to remind then heading up against again and again against oh but it didn't work out but she kind of can't get closure on it you know and i, I, I got very interested in stories where there is no closure because i think so much mm -hmm. uh what else happened is like this too i thought about it a lot in that story um so much of what craft wise we think about short stories is that there's this arc there's resolution something changes something happens and i started to think a lot about the way we sometimes tell ourselves a story like over and over again not because there is resolution but because there's no resolution and so we kind of can't let it go and it keeps coming back to us and we keep going why did they do that that way or why did that person do that and so i think this story in a, in a very short form is like that too where um that she hasn't gotten any they're happy memories and the lack of resolution is that like but it it came to nothing um and so yeah i think she's just it's kind of a story about being in the loop of going back over and over something, which several of the stories are like, yeah. Yeah, the the meta work that you're doing in What Else Happened, I I really love because you're you're illuminating how stories come into being, not in in precise organization and teleology, but as you say, as a as a laying on of the next brick of detail or or syntax. And then what else? And then what else? And that in, in that story, there is the my favorite detail of the entire book, which is that the character who has broken her wrist um, by slipping on on I think it's ice, and uh, you know has been noted as having this you know broken ineffectual arm, and then she falls again and breaks the other one while and, and ends up double casted. And her French professor says to her, and and the other wrist? And there, there, it's this moment of uh, a, a brilliant detail that, that sort of comes, you know, unexpectedly, but also it's still playing with that meta. What's the next detail? She broke her wrist. Oh, she broke her other wrist as well. And I wonder how like humor and the kind of meta work you're doing there uh, mesh together for you. I started writing that story 
after a conversation with someone who was, she was telling a story and I just, and I kept noticing that she was starting to say, why am I talking about this? And I just was fascinated by that. And especially in the ways, um, we were the same age, uh, both writers, the ways young women uh, maybe don't get, well, for reasons we were talking about earlier, like you, you, you sort of grow up kind of being like, I'm having this feeling that this is weird, but like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I shouldn't be worried about this. And so I was just very interested in kind of being in that space with that mental space with that person. Because as my friend was telling the story, I thought, oh God, like I have just a very vivid memory of having a very similar thing, but just the thought process was very familiar to me um, from kind of college years, specifically being like that young. I mean, I, I think I was, it's so interesting you talk about this because I, I think I was like less interested in the like sort of meta of craft and and story making and so much as like just trying to do something with the lived feeling of just like something is this thing that's bothering me and bothering me and I can't figure out why and I'm angry at myself for still thinking about it but what am I going to do because I can't stop thinking about it and whether that can lead you to clarity and I think in the cases of some of these stories it does but I think in this one she kind of doesn't let herself ever get the clarity like she she feels like there was some transgression in this friend dynamic and she can't quite name what it is or she's unwilling to or she can't quite look at it and every time she almost does she kind of looks the other way and but it's still a story you know it's not just because nothing changes doesn't mean just because there's no resolution doesn't make it not a story you know so I, I was interested in the tension between it having the form of a traditional short story but then kind of at every point resisting that resolution Mm. And, and in that way, it seems like although your intention was just to pay attention to what lived storytelling does and is like without necessarily an ordering drive to it, uh, you're you're also revealing the, I guess, the artifice that stories are in some way, these, these sort of like perfectly crafted things and that they're oftentimes drawing on the kind of naturalness of story to to proliferate and to doubt itself and to double back. And so I, I you know, I like the way that that each side of that reveals each other. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, in the, that story that we were just talking about, um, I think of it as very connected to the last story in the book briefly and mm -hmm. where as to this character. Um, every character wants something and it's like a rule that he's trying to teach her about like how writing happens and and of course like throughout this book they so often don't know um and we yes, just we, yeah we, so, we just so often don't know you know it's just it is like a thing that we say about stories that i just think so often isn't true <laughs> um yeah it's a, it's almost like a, a macguffin that we feel like we need to throw into a story to have them chase it You've got to chase the desire that even if they they can't say it, then it it, it will be uh, revealed at some point that their true and essential desire is the thing that they've been driving at. I mean, that's that's every rom com, right? It's right. it's the friend who you dis disregard, but really, you know, when your when your heart you know gets in its right place, it turns out all along that's what you've been desiring. But desire is oh boy, it's not so straightforward. No. I mean, I think they're often clear on like the feeling they're having in, in, in these stories. I think these characters are often very clear on the feeling they're having, but I would not say that then they know why or what it means they want or, or they know a thing they want, but they see very clearly why it's, it's like, I want this friendship back, but that's clearly kind of run its course. <laughs> so then what am I wanting if that's, I want something that's gone now. And, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's, 
yeah, it's more complicated than we say. Yeah, absolutely. Before I let you go, Kate, um, would you be willing to recommend some books that you've been loving to read recently? Yeah. Well, now we've we've mentioned a couple of them now. <laughs> um, so I we spoke about Cara Blue Adams earlier. I know she's been on the podcast. That uh, you know, I I want to talk about short story collections because, um, as I alluded to, you know, it's 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 the sort of seen too often as the lesser genre, the lesser genre. So um, yeah, they need some they need some flagging. Uh, I'm glad that you're you're bringing them to the fore. Yes. Uh, so Carol Blue Adams, uh, her collection, You Never Get It Back. Just a beautiful, beautiful book about, um, you know, when I read the review, the New York Times review of that book, I was like, this is just like exactly what I, so many things that I want. I just feel such a resonance with with the themes that she's working with and just what it is to be a young woman in the world um and uh, i thought i thought your books uh, were so spoke to each other so brilliantly yeah. and even down to the fact that her her one narrator is cage right <laughs> <laughs> um and of course as you know from talking to her and you know i i see her do i saw her do a couple panels she's just she spent so much time working on like working academically on like how does the linked collection as a form operate and i just think she's her thinking about it is is brilliant and i read that book when i was kind of in the final phases of editing this and the way she talked about taking her stories and starting to figure out the linking them up was so formative for me and i just started and loved the first story in alexander chang's new book tomb sweeping that's coming out in august that and and of course her book days of distraction i think yeah, that book is just amazing. <laughs> I know you've had her on the podcast too. Yeah, uh, I hope she'll come back to talk about Tomb Sweeping, which I haven't read yet, but I hear only great things so far. Loving it so far. And yeah, I mean, I think all the time about that moment in Days of Distraction when the character, when you learn like halfway through that when the character's named and the name is Alexandra, I just like, ah. <laughs> <So funny. laughs> yeah, that is an amazing, amazing reveal. It's amazing. And I just think like what she's doing with it's fiction, but it's not is incredible. <laughs> I love that. And then I was um, another one of my favorite, favorite story collections um, is and also she's also from Ethica, um, Sweet Talk by Stephanie. Paul. Oh, I don't know her. Oh, no. She's a professor at Cornell. Okay. It's called Sweet Talk. It came out in like the 90s, I want to say. Yeah, I think you'd really like it. It's it was very for me formative about like it's it has a similar structure in that there's like a, a character and her brother and her parents and their dog and they appear in several stories so but then the other stories are not connected but then those sort of three or four stories are and the last story in particular he's called dog years just gorgeous yeah i think you would mm. really love i'm it. so glad to know about the collection and <laughs> and stephanie <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's really great yeah you know those are my recommendations so I got those are those are fantastic. Uh, and I agree entirely that the short story is not the lesser genre and, and needs much more attention, especially from the publishing world, which should just stop repeating the same truism in their head that it doesn't sell because people love short stories and some of the best, most kind of forward thinking, experimental, meaningful work in fiction is done in those collections. Well, and just like what you can do with a book as a whole is so different to sort of the sort of mosaic quality or the associative quality of like putting different stories next to each other and the meaning that creates over the course of a book is so interesting and different than 
I mean, what a novel can do is amazing, but it's, you know, it's very essayistic and kind of, oh, it's playing with white space, like on a macro level in an interesting way, right? It's, I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I think. Mm-hmm. It's a weird thing that it's, I feel like the whole way along I've known that, well, this can't really be true because like somehow they're still getting published. Like someone is writing them, someone is publishing them, someone is reading them, but uh, it's, it's a strange that just gets repeated again and again. It's the phrase was always, it, I always say stories are hard. <laughs> it's sort of the rejection emails always say. <laughs> So uh, yeah, I don't I don't like that. They need they need to think like differently about this all because we're yeah. reading them and you're writing them, and so that relationship is already there. So just if they're even from a vulgarly commercial stance, just think more about what that relationship requires, and perhaps a little less saying stories are hard will help. Yeah, I mean, especially I think it's been so interesting. I like started working with my agent and like the very beginning of the pandemic and then we were some months in mission and like 2021 and it felt like everything like these old myths were persisting but that, you know so people would be saying stories are hard because of course like everything was so everything we've looked at the past few years i think people are hesitant to people felt like scared and of course and we're kind of going by what they thought they knew but then anecdotally friends and family people were just saying all the time like i don't know it's like life is so crazy right now i don't have the attention span for anything I, all i want to do is read a short story <laughs> yeah yeah so it's interesting well, we'll hope for um, better things generally, but uh, my my main goal today is to tell all of you listeners how much you need to run out and get I Meant It Once by Kate Doyle, a truly exceptional debut collection of stories that will not let you go. And thank you so much, Kate, for coming on the show and, and talking so beautifully about your work. Oh, this is so wonderful. Thank you for amazing questions. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Kate Doyle for coming on to talk about her beautiful debut collection of stories, I Meant It Once. If you're looking for a short story collection that hits all your fiction buttons, this one is for you. You can find links to purchase I Meant It Once and all Kate's recommended books at the website burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.